0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Who is Steve Bannon? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That might seem like a strange question for right now. A few years ago, Steve Bannon was the subject of plenty of media fascination. Stephen Bannon.
2: Political provocateur, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is over here, Steve Bannon.
1: Steve Bannon, a man you got to sit down with.
2: So, Steve Bannon, you have called us the enemy. Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is ambitious. The most powerful person in the White House, Steve Bannon.
1: He went from running the conservative propaganda website Breitbart News to becoming the CEO of the first Trump campaign in August 2016. He then served in the White House as chief strategist until August 2017 when he stepped down or when he got fired. But let's not split hairs. So why does he matter now? Well, Bannon has never needed conventional power in order to reach the public. Since 2019, he's been hosting a podcast called War Room. And I'm here to tell you, in case you didn't know, his show is hugely influential. It's consistently among the top five politics shows in the U.S. This movement he has helped create matters. In fact, you could make the case that Bannon did as much as anyone in this country to lay the foundations for Trumpism which means he's done as much as anyone to lay the foundation for the attack on the Capitol last year. Here's some of what he was saying on his show on January 5th. Listen,
2: all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day, so strap in, let's get ready. 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're gonna be live.
1: The House committee investigating the Capitol attack has issued subpoenas, but he failed to respond. Right now, he's awaiting trial on two counts of contempt of Congress. And yet, every day, from the basement of the Washington, D.C. townhouse, referred to as the Breitbart Embassy, live and unedited, for four hours a day, Bannon speaks, uh, is, and a uh, ton of people are listening. Jim
2: Kramer. That's all the progressives and liberals. That's the Wall Street crowd right there. They've had the pom poms out from day one. That scumbag. It, it just being a scumbag is not the problem. Being an
1: idiot is. So whatever you think of Bannon, and I'll tell you what I think. I'm not sure we can fully understand this political moment without also understanding what he's been up to.
2: But you are not the Greek chorus. You're an active part of this.
1: That's why I invited Jennifer Sr. onto the show. Sr. is a Pulitzer Prize-winning staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of a fantastic recent feature on Bannon and his influence. It's called American Rasputin. Jennifer was given plenty of access to Bannon and his associates, so much so that in the piece itself, she frequently wonders, Am I being used? We'll talk about how Bannon uses the media, whether or not he has a coherent political ideology, and about the destruction he either foresees or is actively working to bring about. But we'll start where any conversation about Steve Bannon has to start. Who is he, really?
3: Steve Bannon was, if you were going to assign responsibility anyone. I would say that he was the most responsible for getting Trump elected. He came in in 2016 and took a foundering campaign. And he came in at the 11th hour and he made the campaign viable. No one thought he could do it. I'm not sure he thought he could do it. In hindsight, of course, he says he could have done it. But do we know that? We don't. What he also is, is the guy who has given the most kind of intellectual texture and firmness to A Trump philosophy, because there never really was an articulated Trump philosophy. He's given it its contours. He's done the best job, I think, in the country of articulating what Trumpism is, which includes sweeping in the big lie as one of its foundational ideas, but also a kind of economic populism, an economic nationalism, I should say, that's what it really is. And I think he's a dangerous force in American politics in that I think he is the number one Kind of roaring outboard motor of disinformation in the United States right now.
1: That's interesting. So, you do buy this idea that this whole Trump era, this national nightmare, wouldn't be possible without Bannon laying the foundations for what would become Trumpism with sites like Breitbart and whatever?
3: I mean, others would certainly have done it. I think he gives everyone the best crispest talking points. I think that he's the best at capturing Trumpism distilled, giving everyone the songs to sing, the hymns to sing from. And also, I mean, I guess it's conceivable that Trump would have won without him, right? They were fumfering along. It looked like they were continuing to fumfer along. But I do think that Steve Bannon plays an underrated role in the party. I do think that's true. I think that we ignore him at our own peril. If for no other reason than what he does is he's really in the business uh, moving the Overton window and mainstreaming unacceptable ideas. Yep. He's very, very good at that. And you will often find something in the mainstream and you will see that it sort of started with him. I had a friend not that long ago parrot back a talking point of Steve Bannon's to me and I was Googling frantically, trying to find where else she could have found it. And it was really this one thing she was saying about a possible link between the vaccine and an uptick in mortality rates among millennials. It started with one guy appearing on Steve Bannon's show, because among other things, he is a big sower of disinformation about the vaccine. And this had somehow made it into my friend's feed. I couldn't find any other source for it. I looked and I looked, high and low.
1: We're obviously talking against the backdrop of these January 6th hearings. I am curious what you think the significance of that event was for Bannon? Was that kind of like the culmination of his work, of all the foundation laying he's been doing over these last several years? I mean, I was listening to some clips of his podcast on January 5th. I don't know to what extent he was involved in preparations or planning or plotting or whatever, but he knew what was coming and he clearly welcomed it and celebrated it.
3: So I might eat my words, but what I would say is that he often speaks with a lot of machismo and extra habanero about, all oh, hell is going to break loose. This is going to be epic. Mm-hmm. But what he's really talking about is our people are ready, but then he means that they're ready to man the phones and that they're ready to tweet. He's such a dervish of chaos that I don't know if I would necessarily say that he was responsible in any logistical way for January 6th, but he was one of the architects, surely, of the legislative insurrection, which he was very invested in. And more to the point, I think he was responsible for organizing the energy behind it.
1: Right. That's what I'm thinking of.
3: Yeah. In that way, I do think that you can... Yes. So Steve Bannon's podcast is really interesting in that it's not entertainment. It is a show that is explicitly aimed at energizing the Trump base. Yep. And it's there to inflame. He's there to be a televangelist. And he does things that televangelists do. He rouses his audience. and He sort of gets them going through a mixture of praise and attaboys and girls and inspirational messaging. And he says to them, you can make a difference. Use your agency. He has all these little catchphrases. Put your shoulder to the wheel. Be a force multiplier. Yeah. And every single guest who comes on a show provides their own testimonial, their success story. I didn't think that I could be a local activist, but then I discovered that I could, and here's how, and here are the phone numbers to call. And at the end of every segment, he ends by saying, how can our audience reach you? How can they find you? What's your Twitter handle? What's your getter handle? What's your website? Sometimes people leave phone numbers of their organizations And what we learned from January 6th is you don't need that many people to breach a capital. A few thousand people can create total havoc. So the fact that Steve Bannon might not be as popular as, say, Ben Shapiro or Joe Rogan is not what matters in this case. It's how motivated his audience is, even if it's smaller.
1: Well, it's interesting that you use the word televangelist there. When I think of a televangelist, I think of a bullshit artist. I think of a, a religious entrepreneur. Yep. And <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Do you think he is a uh, just a complete grifter? I honestly don't know if he is a revolutionary or just a well-financed shit poster. I cannot tell. You know, I mean, he's clearly a liar, right? Like that's not in question. I guess I'm asking. If you think he really believes in what he's doing, I think he knows when he's full of shit, but the question is, does he see it as a means to some noble end or is it just the grift and nothing besides?
3: It's the best question and it's what I set out to answer. And I think the problem is that when somebody as practiced at bullshitting as he is, the answer in some ways has to be both because you can't have two sets of books for very long without in some way trying to intellectually reconcile them so that you've only lied once and then afterwards you believe your own lie? I mean, I think that that might just be the psychology of grifting. We know that he's living very lavishly thanks to others. He's got houses all over the place. He's partial to nice hotels. When he was trying to get the European populist nationalist movement off the ground, he stayed in all these fabulous luxury suites financed by others. He takes private jets that are owned by others. The Mercers underwrote him. So... I think it's kind of not a choice. It might be both. What I think is interesting is if you ask anybody around Steve, like if you ask the people who know him and who like him, does he truly believe that the election was stolen? The number who will say yes, did any say yes to me now that I think about it? Oh my God. I mean, so many people, if they're trying to protect him, they'll say they don't know. No smart people, no people who live within the beltway who know how politics works, who know the kind of logistics. No one who really knows anything about elections believes this election was stolen. That's the bottom line. And the January 6th hearings played this out.
1: You know, the thing is, in order for his shtick, or whatever you want to call it, to work, he has to perform that belief. But I just don't quite buy it. I mean, there are two sides. So take look at something like the we build the wall project he raises billions of dollars which turns out is just for his personal expenses or at least mostly for his personal expenses he was indicted for fraud he's pardoned by trump then as we speak he's awaiting trial for contempt of congress he's had his passport suspended i mean the stench of shadiness is just so thick But then there's this other side, right? In 2019, he pops up at the Vatican and gives this serious seeming address about the civilizational threat posed by Islamic fascism. So that's all to say that if you're squinting hard enough, you can sometimes start to see a kind of mission behind all of this. But to me, the grift is the thing. And I can see glimpses of that in your piece. I mean, you describe him as he gets pissed off at one of his assistants, who's saying or admitting that his podcast rankings have slipped just a little bit. So again, is this a guy worried about his audience numbers and ad revenue? Or is he the leader of an intellectual movement or some weird combination of both?
3: I mean, it takes great pride in saying, in fact, that none of the deplorables have to pay for his content.
1: Oh, a man of the people. Right.
3: He makes it the opposite line of argument, right? Which is that exactly he's a man of the people. I think there are two things at play here. He would claim that the whole we build the wall thing was, look, as a nonprofit, I had to pay my people. We took a whole show on the road to actually make the case for building the wall. And there was a lot of infrastructure that had to be done. And I just took my cut. Hmm. Like that was my fee and what I paid my people. That's his argument. And he's sticking to it. I don't know how plausible it is. Okay but here's the issue. I have watched Steve in real time start with a position just for sport, right? He will just sort of take a point of view. And before I know it, he will start to inhabit that position the way a champion debater would. So you have to keep that in mind. I would also If I wanted to make his case, I would say, look, in 2008, he watched his father look at his 401k, which got totally destroyed when the world economy went belly up. And then his father panicked and sold off a lot of his own 401k. And this made Steve forever very angry. If that were the case, though, I think you would have seen a lot more from him in 2008 that reflected a genuine interest in economic populism. And I think in the Trump administration, he would have pushed for huge tax increases on the rich and we saw nothing of the kind. It was the opposite. So I think to your point, this to me seems like he's a showman and like there's a lot of sport in it.
1: Exactly. The lines are so blurry. And to this point about him being a populist or him being a man of the people, his backstory is so curiously at odds with his audience today. He's like leading this subterranean movement against the elites, against elite institutions. But he is so obviously an elite himself, or at least he is a product of elite institutions in Harvard, Goldman Sachs.
3: And the Georgetown School of Foreign Service.
1: Yeah, exactly. What do you make of that contradiction? I mean, is this story that like, look, I've been inside the monster and that's where this hatred of it comes from?
3: That is obviously what he would say. Okay. That's clearly what he would say. You could also say, look, He comes from this working-class Irish Catholic family in Richmond, Virginia, and all of his siblings share his politics, and his dad was just this guy who worked for over 50 years for the phone company. I mean, when I went to his dad's funeral, which was in and of itself kind of a bonkers thing to have been a part of, on the one hand, it was a brilliant move, right? I mean, it was also sort of a crazy guerrilla ambush. Like suddenly your siblings are like, who is this person? And it's like, oh, it's a reporter. But they're so used to him that it was fine. They're very warm, the Bannons. They're this incredibly gracious, boisterous family. I really liked them. It occurred to me after 48 hours of being around them, if I had been born into that family, I would have shared the exact same politics. We think our politics are these carefully thought through, examined, deeply held convictions, and they are, in fact, inherited. Right. So you could claim that in spite of the fact that he got his passport stamped at Harvard, at Georgetown, at Goldman, you can claim his politics are deeper than that and that his populist roots do go back. You could claim that.
1: I found it kind of riveting, and I couldn't believe that he allowed you to go to his father's funeral. I mean, on the one hand, that seems kind of nuts, but then also it seems Kind of brilliant for him. and you, to your credit, and this is something I've wrestled with because I've written about Bannon. I wonder if people like you and I have made him appear more important than he really is, merely by talking about him we're doing his bidding. and you play with the idea that Banning was using you in your piece. and I mean, On some level, the answer has to be yes, because he wouldn't do it if he didn't think he was getting something out of it. Now, maybe he's wrong about whatever he thinks he's getting, but he must think he's getting something out of it. What do you think he got out of this? What do you think he thinks he got out of this, out of allowing you that kind of access?
3: Well, I mean, honestly, I think that in some ways, he has the same desire for mainstream coverage and mainstream respectability as his boss, I think it's as simple as that. I think he'll take any opportunity to own the libs. He keeps his television all day long. All it runs is MSNBC. Mm, Yeah. I mean, he can claim that we're all very obsessed with Donald Trump and that he lives in our heads rent-free, but the problem is we live in his head rent-free, too. He's obsessed with us. He really is. And having MSNBC on all day long is really... I think evidence is something quite profound, and I think he thinks the Atlantic is an important destination and that it'll sort of widen his ambit a little bit. And let me just say this, I don't feel like I'm doing something dangerous and platforming him. We're a little bit past that naive argument. Mm -hmm. Exposure is not an endorsement. Exposure is journalism. And Steve Bannon is doing what Steve Bannon is doing, whether we pay attention to him or not, whether we stick our fingers in our ears, and cover our eyes or not. And what he is doing is providing the most radical set of talking points for the Republican Party. He is a font of disinformation. He's very committed to it. And he's got a very active audience that will go out and use this disinformation. And most important, he's very committed to the precinct strategy. So he is getting people as he likes to say, village by village, but it's precinct by precinct, school board by school board to become election monitors, to become parts of school boards so that they can control, you know, the curriculum. If you become a precinct captain, eventually you can have a great deal of power within elections and you can be quite consequential. I think Democrats would do well to imitate this strategy, to take note of this strategy. And let me say one thing, I mean, just to this point about like, oh, what are you doing handing him the microphone? By listening to him, he has been saying for months that the second the Republicans take over, they ought to impeach Joe Biden and that the first article of impeachment ought to be failure to protect and defend because there are so many undocumented immigrants coming over the border from Mexico. And sure enough, a poll came out not that long ago saying that 70% of all registered Republican voters now think that the first thing the House Republicans should do when they take control, which they will, in 2023, is impeach Biden. So maybe they would have done it without Bannon, but he is part of that right flank that is mainstreaming these ideas and giving them all of the intellectual kind of reasons for wanting to do this, right? Giving them their justification, laying out the predicate. And sure, we can ignore them, but do you want to be caught on your back foot? I mean, do the Democrats have an answer for this? If that's honestly what happens, do they have a strategy?
1: When we come back, we'll talk about the paradox of free speech in an open society. com slash box. You know, I just wrote a book called The Paradox of Democracy available in fine bookstores near you, dear listeners.
3: I purchased it. What a hero. It looks terrific.
1: Thank you. But part of what it's about is like, and this is so important and you're gesturing at it, right? Like whatever you think of Bannon, I think he understands the significance of media in an open society, and he's very strategically exploiting it to undermine democracy from within. And he's incredibly transparent about that in your conversations with him, right?
3: That's the thing. Believe the autocrat. The autocrat says what he means, right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. This is the part about it where there's no guessing involved, whether his heart is in it or not what he's doing financially, what he's saying on his encrypted cell phones, what his actual involvement was in January 6th, we might not know that. We know what he's trying to do. That's exactly it. He is ultimately a media guy. He was at Breitbart. He was very shrewd about Breitbart. And the thing that he told Errol Morris that I quoted in my piece early on, I think bears repeating for your audience so that they can understand what he does and what he's so smart about. It's super important. When Steve Bannon was in Hong Kong in the 2000s, he noticed early on how committed and how intense a certain demographic was, mainly young single men in their 30s, let's say, how committed they were to playing multiplayer online games. And he realized that they thought of their online selves, their avatars, as being more real in some ways than their in-real-life selves. And he gave this example of Dave in accounting. But
2: there's a guy, Dave. He weighs 250 pounds. He drops dead of a heart attack in his cubicle. He's got a wife and two kids that don't really know him. Some preacher from a church or some guy from the funeral home that's never met him does a 10-minute eulogy, says a few prayers. And that's Dave. Dave in the game, he's Ajax. And Ajax is like... The man. When it comes to burying Ajax, they're gonna put him on a caisson and they're gonna take it up for a funeral pyre and they're gonna burn the digital Ajax. There's literally thousands of people there. Now, who's more real? Dave in accounting that's in the urn, his analog self, or is it Ajax? People take on these digital selves where they can control things in a digital way that they can't control in the analog
1: world.
3: So when he went to Breitbart, he built out the comments section, understanding that people preferred their online selves and that it was where they went to for fellowship and community. And he said that anger, properly directed, can be weaponized. It can be used for political aims. So what happened on January 6th? people showed up in a funny way as their own avatars. They were in fur skirts and face paint yeah. and they had their own equivalent of caissons and yeah. they fought a rival army, you know, the way they do in video games. I mean, he understood something about the connection between those games and the Breitbart comments section and who we are online. And I think he knows how to play off of our political id, you know, the great angry id of American politics.
1: Yeah, I think he also understands something very deep and ugly, but also very important about digital age and this whole weird psychosocial landscape it's created, right? There's this like undercurrent of resentment. There's like a vacuum of meaning. A lot of people feel very disconnected from society, from the political process. And that is real latent political power. And he's a kind of political fantasist, right? And he gives these people a story onto which they can latch and attach their political identity to. And they become like, you know, real life soldiers in a way.
3: 100%. Yeah. But to be fair, I mean, he's talking to an audience that legitimately feels disenfranchised. I mean, I don't, in some ways, I don't blame people for yearning for this kind of thing. Wages have been stagnating for 50 years. There is a class of human beings who are so utterly screwed in the United States. They're getting larger every day. It's not that he isn't speaking to an audience that is genuinely, profoundly, for all kinds of legitimate reasons, aggrieved. Bernie Sanders was speaking to that audience. I prefer his species of populism because it doesn't have the hatred and because there's no built-in lie about who won what. But I think that you have to acknowledge he's very canny about what he's speaking to and what he's found.
1: Bernie is a perfect counterpoint here, and this is why I find someone like Bannon such a malicious actor and, quite frankly, a fascist. And I use that word very deliberately, right? I mean, the essence of fascism is mobilizing these sorts of resentments in ways that will only reinforce the conditions that produce the resentment in the first place, right? So like, yeah, there may be legitimate grievances out there, but he's mobilizing that energy in a way that will do nothing to actually redress those grievances. It will only make things worse. And that's what is so disgusting about this project, from my perspective.
3: And not just from yours. How I say it is this. I keep saying to him, what do you expect will happen once you've torn it all down? Yes. And he has no answer for this. Bernie had answers. Bannon is very direct in saying some people are meant to clear the fields and other people are meant to sow the fields. Mm-hmm. And he's very clear that he's only there to clear the fields. But to me, what that is, is laying dynamite beneath the floorboards of democracy and just blowing it up and leaving a smoking hole where our institutions used to be. There's no positive vision. And to your point about fascism, what it ultimately is, is content free, right? It's in the end about only power. So I don't disagree with you.
1: He. Strikes me in a very weird way as a deeply religious thinker, in the sense that, like, he is obsessed with apocalyptic decline and order and rebirth. And you mentioned in the piece that his favorite book, a book he's obsessed with, is a book called The Fourth Turning. It is a kind of like foundational text for his worldview to the extent that he has one. And it kind of offers this very cyclical view of history where it goes from like order in this kind of downward descent to chaos. And then every hundred years, the slate has to be wiped clean or something like that. And Correct. Maybe just tell people what the fourth turning really is if I didn't do a good job there and how that is such an anchor to his project.
3: Yes, it is. And that history happens in 80 to 100 year cycles where, right, there's periods of creation and then followed by periods of questioning, followed by periods of chaos and total destruction And he thinks that we are in a moment of destruction. And historically, the authors of this book have noted that autocracies are frequently a feature of those moments of chaos and destruction. And why Steve Bannon wants to be an agent of that chaos and destruction rather than, you could ask, why wouldn't he just like passively let it unfold is an interesting question. And might speak a little bit to the televangelist instinct in him. I think this is an important point, what you said about his spiritual dimension, because he does have one. And I was going to mention it earlier when you said, well, is he or isn't he a believer? You know, you could argue that this plays into some part of him that is a seeker and fundamentally kind of itinerant, can't stay at any organization for very long. He has embraced all kinds of spiritual practices, he's got a Zen bench. He's dabbled in Hindu traditionalism. He's super into the work of Gurdjieff, this obscure-ish, I think obscure, Russian mystic and philosopher. He gave me this long, rhapsodic disquisition that was also slightly censorious because he couldn't believe I'd never heard of Gurdjieff and the work of Gurdjieff. Well, how would you describe it? He says it's what the movie Groundhog Day was sort of based on. That you wake up every morning and you try and deepen yourself and become a better version of yourself so that you're not in your ruts. And the only way Bill Murray could ultimately win Andy McDowell's heart was when he finally got over himself and became a bigger, more expansive person. So it's interesting that Steve Bannon is kind of into this. I mean, he wakes up every day trying to be. By his own reckoning, a better
1: Steve Bannon. Yeah, but come on, do you, do you buy any of that crap? I mean, you know, I do. Not that those ideas are crap, but that he's really sincerely, is he just searching around for like an intellectual wrapping to kind of paper over his pseudo intellectual nonsense? Or do you think this is for real for him?
3: No, he wakes up in the morning and does spiritual exercises. I do believe it. But again, like this can be just a way that. Televangelists are also people who are in search of a narrative for whatever they're doing. I think what one genuinely detects in Steve Bannon is a restlessness. I think that's absolutely there. And I don't think it's horseshit that he wakes up every morning and has some kind of spiritual practice. The fact that he's bounced from one to another is interesting, right? I mean, that alone suggests that there's still a promiscuity to his practices, he's still working it out, that he hasn't found what he's looking for yet.
1: Or he's a seeker who became a zealot and a monomaniacal one at that.
3: I do think that this spiritual dimension of Bannon's seems authentic to me. It does feel genuine. And as you point out, the fourth turning has this kind of spiritual significance for him.
1: Okay, so he wants to sweep away the whole edifice of decadent, modern, liberal democracy in order to what? makes space for the sort of a new cycle of history?
3: This is the problem. It is content free. Mm. And if I had a nickel for every time I asked him this question, Steve, what comes next? Steve, what is there? He will just fall back and say, it's the fourth turning. We are at an inflection point. It's all can't. It's all spiritual can't. It's all hymns. And they are not inspirational hymns. To me, they are American carnage hymns. They are dark and dystopic.
2: I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. You know, I think his inauguration speech is still the greatest speech he's ever given. And the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now.
1: Right, I mean. Content-free is a, a good way to put it. I mean, for me, it's just, it's pure negation, right? Yes. It's a giant no.
3: Pure negation. That's very well said.
1: And so they may be content-free, but there is a strategy and a very formidable one at that, right? You've mentioned misinformation and disinformation a few times in this conversation. And I wrote a piece about this idea of flooding the zone with shit. And I credit Bannon in large part with introducing that. And what I have said before, and I'll say again, is that I think he understands the political press better than the political press understands itself. I think he very successfully hacked the media. And the idea here was always pretty simple, right? The press is set up to mediate a functioning liberal democracy. We're supposed to sift fact from fiction and we give the public the information they need to make enlightened political choices. You know, at least that's the fantasy. But Bannon just said, nah, nah. I'm going to short circuit that process by flooding the ecosystem with misinformation and overwhelm the media's ability to mediate. So he just lies repeatedly and shamelessly and watches the press fumble over itself, attempting to debunk all those lies and actually just reinforce them with their coverage. He's been a kind of mastermind of that.
3: This is Hannah Arendt territory, right? What you do eventually is just exhaust people. You numb them.
1: Yeah. Do you think I'm giving him too much credit there?
3: No, 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 no. I think that he takes pride in being a propagandist. I think Andrew Breitbart called him the Lenny Riefenstahl of the Tea Party movement. Yeah. And I asked him how he felt about that. And he said, well, setting aside Lenny Riefenstahl's politics, I take that as a compliment, essentially, because she was a very good propagandist. And I think that my films about Sarah Palin, they're called The Undefeated, all of these films that he made around 2010, 2011, 2012, he thinks they're really good propaganda. Yep. And part of what propaganda is playing somebody up, like Sarah Palin, but a lot of it is, as you just said, it's much more nihilistic. It's about confusing the shit out of people yep. and wearing them down. Yep. And we no longer all listen to Cronkite. We have all retreated into our silos of information. You know, I just heard David French say on a panel, he's one of my favorite guys on the right, He says whenever he follows somebody on one side, he then goes and follows someone on the other side so that he's never living in this isolated world. How many of us actually take the time to do that? There are definitely people on the right that I follow, but that is some very intentional, scrupulous practice that he has embraced for himself. There is real discipline in that, and it's intellectually so high-minded, and we would all be better off if we did exactly that. But Bannon knows that the opposite is true.
1: Yep, he's playing a different game.
3: He's playing a different game that's based on our guts and our emotions. And so it was very interesting. At one moment, I said to him, why do you think it is that Democrats never mastered talk radio? And he had this immediate answer, which was, Democrats are masters of cool mediums. Yep. They're really good at the thinky stuff. Yep. And then he said this, this is almost verbatim. He said, If I am just a voice coming in between your ears, I can fuck with your mind. That's what he said.
1: Okay, one last break. When we come back, is Steve Bannon less of a media strategist and more of a political artist? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do, but when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try GreenLight for free. GreenLight.com slash gray area. That language, the cool medium, that jumped out to me. That's language borrowed from Marshall McLuhan, right? Yep. A very prominent media theorist and philosopher. And you mentioned Lenny Riefenstahl a minute ago, right? She was a filmmaker for the Nazis and she and people like Goebbels, the chief propagandist for the Nazis, fancied themselves very self-consciously as political artists mm-hmm. and Bannon does something very similar where he constructs a fantasy and if enough people attach themselves to that and affirm it, it almost like makes it a reality or kind of brings it into being, right? I mean, the way he talks about media suggests to me that he really does get what it means to live in a fully mediated world.
3: And a hot mediated world.
1: Yeah. And I think he believes that a digital world with very immersive, totalizing, insulating media platforms and technologies is a world in which reality really is up for grabs. And his role is to be that political artist shaping it and carving it and curating it and mobilizing people.
3: I can't believe you're saying this just because the word artist... Here's a crazy story. So at some point I had to tell Steve that 25 minutes of our conversation in a bar following his father's funeral were somehow lost. My recording says 51 minutes or something, but 25 minutes of it like is nothing. This has never happened to me and there is a part of me that is totally convinced it's like Steve's encrypted phones, you know, sort of jammed my record. I don't know. I mean I'm making that up. I don't think that's true. But there was a tech failure. They're lost. They're totally lost. It doesn't matter. I have hours and hours and hours of recordings with Steve and everything is verbatim, but I couldn't use those 25 minutes. And I said that to him and he said, I am so mad about this. I am so mad about this. I consider myself this artiste. He used the word artiste.
1: Did he say it like that too?
3: Yeah. And that's actually on a recording that that I have. (laughs) And he said, I'm like this artiste. You know, so to your very point, it's fascinating that you say this.
1: What does the next January 6th look like, Jennifer? I mean, what is Bannon doing to make it happen? I mean, as you described in the piece, as you've described in this conversation, he has this podcast called War Room and really this entire approach to media that cultivates an atmosphere of emergency that instills in the audience very self-consciously a sense of besiegement. That game, in order to keep going, has to continue to escalate and escalate and escalate. So what is next?
3: So if he's telling all these people that the system is rigged, and we've seen that he's kind of an asymmetrical threat, you don't need that many people to create violence, to storm a capital, to kill cops and harm cops. Would the next January 6th be violent? I mean, my fear is... I think 2022 is a lost cause. I think that the House is going to be overwhelmingly run by Republicans. I think the Senate will also move into Republican hands. Maybe Roe slightly changes that calculus for the Senate, but maybe not. So, assuming that we've got that, then the question is will there be two years of backlash to them? Yeah. And then in 2024, would the Democrats have regained enough steam to capture the White House? No matter who the nominee is. But if you've got people like Bannon who are claiming that the whole apparatus for tallying votes is illegitimate, will enough people reject election results that this becomes a much worse problem? I don't know. I just, I can't say. Or will the infrastructure once again barely hold because enough people who are not election deniers will still be in office? Tina Peters did not win, correct? Colorado.
1: Apparently she lost.
3: She's like, their show's Joan of Arc. She went super rogue and made a copy of like the Dominion Voting. I mean, she did all kinds of crazy things. I mean, it just depends. But you know, Mastriano won in Pennsylvania. I mean, we we just don't know. We don't know if it's gonna be a partial overhaul of the Republican Party or whether once people are actually sitting in those seats, they won't really be able to bring themselves to reject the results of a free and fair election. It also presumes a lot to say that Democrats will be able to win in 2024. I just don't know how this is going to go.
1: Yeah, well, we know what he wants. He's an accelerationist. He wants the destruction of the present political order. I do not know if that will come about. But if I believe anything about him, it's that he wants to see that happen.
3: Exactly right. If he truly believed that history just worked in cycles, he could just sit aside and watch it all unfold. But he's a participant.
1: I've continually gone back and forth on this, and I find myself going back and forth on this as we're talking about it. But still, in the end, I'm not quite convinced that there's really anything behind the curtain here, which is not to say that Bannon is dumb. I believe he's very, very smart. But smart is not wise. And smart does not necessarily imply real depth or purpose. Sometimes smart is just a nihilistic grift masquerading as a campaign to save civilization. And what worries me about someone like Bannon is that if he is driven by anything besides power or destruction, it's just contempt. And he seems willing to dedicate his life to burning everything down with perhaps some vague hope that it will lead to a new turning or whatever the hell, some kind of rebirth. But I don't think it ever works out like that. So I guess all of that is to say, I think he's empty and dangerous at the same time, though I admit I might be wrong. Maybe he is completely earnest. I don't know. Is that ultimately where you landed?
3: If you're going to use a thousand adjectives to describe Steve Bannon, earnest doesn't make the top thousand from my point of view.
1: It wouldn't be my bet.
3: Projecting authenticity is a thing because you can play the part of an authentic human being without necessarily authentically believing a thing. And I think there's a real element of Barnum in him. I think he, like Trump, believes in suckers. So I share your concern. I also think people can talk themselves into believing something. I also think that Bannon does have that restless spiritual side that makes it easier for him to embrace these things and tell himself that he believes these things. My point is that it's beside the point. It's immaterial. Whether he believes it or not is not what's most consequential. It's what harm he's doing, whether he believes it or not. And I think that the harm is beyond dispute. I think it's harmful. I was hoping to find someone who might genuinely somewhere in his core believe this. And that's not what I found.
1: Jennifer, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. I encourage anyone listening to go read your profile at The Atlantic. It really is terrific. And you are a terrific writer. Again, thank you so much for coming in today.
3: Thank you so much for having me on your show.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drosdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversationsatvox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.